Have you ever dreamt of owning a business without having to build one from scratch? Well, how would you like to know the exact steps to follow and avoid the common pitfalls that many new business owners face along the way? Today's guest will be speaking about not just that, but also on setting a business right before it's time to sell. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary, the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. My today's guest is David Barnett, who is an author, speaker, and is a private transaction advisor on buying and selling businesses. After a career in advertising and sales, he started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage. Over several years, David sold dozens of businesses for others while also managing his own portfolio of income properties and starting his career as a local private investor. And today he joins me to share his expertise in buying and selling businesses the right way and tells many stories about common pitfalls that most new business owners face. For somebody who does not have a lot of experience in buying businesses or even running a business, what kind of things should they look for with the limited money or limited resources that they have before they buy a business? Oh, that's a great question. So. If you're asking if someone has no business experience, what should they look for in buying a business? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I always tell people that they should get some experience in sales at a minimum. Because, you know, most of the time when people are buying a small business, not only are they making an investment, but they're also sort of looking for a job. Because most of the time when people buy a small business, they become the manager manager of the business. And ultimately, one of the things that a business owner is responsible for is the sales and the flow of cash into the business. And so sometimes I'll get people who tell me they have a dream of owning a business, but they've never run a business or managed one before. And what I'll do is I'll encourage them to do something at least to get into sales. And there are a couple of ways that that people can do that to sort of gain that experience. It's also a litmus test to see if their dream really holds up when they're you know, faced with the reality of rejection from potential clients and things like this. Um, one of the things is that people can do is they can work with charity and do fundraising because it's a great opportunity to be told no all the time. And the other thing that I've actually encouraged people to do is to participate in some kind of MLM program because it's sort of a ready-made little business that they can go out and start selling goods or or services and whatnot and get that initial experience that will show them what it's like uh, to be a business owner. Uh, I've actually had a lot of clients um, in my past who wanted to sell businesses. um, And one of the reasons why they wanted to sell is is they they got into business, they started one or what have you, um, and then realized once they were in it that they really were not cut out for being a business owner and they did not get the joy out of it that they thought they would. And that's why they were selling. Mm, that's really, really interesting. Because um, I guess, yes, everyone has the dream of, you know, being a business owner, but you don't know what it takes until you actually do it properly. Well, exactly. And, and 
you know, it's funny. One of the biggest reasons why people want to sell a business is actually burnout, boredom, fatigue. I kind of lump those into a group, those reasons. And, you know, something happens in a person where they, they lose their zest, you know, their passion for what they're doing every day. And uh, I've had people, you know, back when I had my brokerage office open, they would come in and they'd say, I've decided I want to sell my business. And I would say, why do you need to sell? You notice the N word there. Why do you need to sell? And, and they would sometimes would puff themselves up and say, well, I don't need to sell. I just want to figure out what, you know, what my business is worth. And I'm just not you know, into it anymore. I'm kind of tired of it. And then I would, I would have a couple of questions in my arsenal that would, that would help to disarm the situation. And one of them was, when your telephone rings, who are you more afraid of, customers or employees? Because when people reach that point, when they reach that point that they are fed up and they just want out, they, they, their stomach tightens up and they cringe at the notion of having to spend time working on this thing. And mentally, they've already checked out. And you've probably met people in this kind of position before, Vindya, yeah. where they had a lot of vigor and desire and passion, and then eventually they got worn down. A lot of the times that's because the business was never built properly. You know, they ended up being the, the almost like a, the, the, you know, the central decision maker and everything gets rooted through them. They just get burned out because they don't build the proper systems and let other people do things for them. But, you know, I've seen that many times. Hmm. Well, I think uh, one of the main reasons that I've seen, and I know the type of cases that you're talking about as well, um, is that they started the business, but not for the right reason. They started the business for something that the business is going to give them. So they're not like once they got where they did the success, the customers and everything, they're actually after something else. And then they realize that at that point, and then that's the point, I guess, then they're just most of the time burnt out because you're not passionate about it because you were actually after something else. There was like a means to an end. Yeah. You know, I, I think that when people daydream about the future, you know, you can kind of see different pathways that you might go down. And at a certain point, if you start to envision pathways that don't include your business, you know, that, that's when that departure starts to occur. Because now mentally you're headed down a different road than where that business is going. And when I used to meet people that were in that situation, I used to say to them, you know, quite honestly, we have to sell quickly. We have to evaluate the business. We have to put a reasonable price on it so we don't scare away the right buyer because we need someone to step forward and purchase this business before your attitude starts to reflect in the financial statements. Mm. Because when a, when a business owner loses that drive and passion, they're not returning customer calls at seven o'clock at night. They're not, you know, firing the guy on the loading dock with the drinking problem because they don't want the hassle of hiring another guy. Right. And then that guy tips over, uh, you know, a pallet load of inventory and there's a loss, you know, all kinds of things happen when people lose their fire and really it, it, it becomes about selling the business quickly so that they can move on to that next thing. They're going to become happier. The business goes from being an asset almost to being a liability for those people. And one of the things that sellers have the biggest problem with is understanding the value of their business. In almost every case, sellers think their business is worth far more than it really is.
Well, David, there's so many questions that I want to ask you about um, a selling and buying business because I know that my audience will be definitely interested in that. But before I do that, I want to um, I want to ask you, how did you get started in this? Like, what was that journey like? What made you want to um, get into buying and selling businesses and and now advising people on how to do it? Yeah, that's sure, no problem. I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, ever since I was a child, I was always finding out ways that I could earn money. You know. Uh, live in Canada, so as a child, one of the first things you you have the opportunity to do, of course, is shovel snow and then mow lawns, right? So I was doing those things, and then you know went from one childhood business to another, and eventually I went to business school, got my university degree, and after university, I got the opportunity to be a sales rep with the Yellow Pages, and then that was a real, and this was in the '90s, so that was a real great experience for me because it was such an important media at that time before Google had figured out how to do local searching. You know, if you typed plumber into Google in those days, you got someone in California, no matter where in the world you were. And so, so the yellow pages was really important. And, and in working for them, I got to go out and meet the owners and managers of all these local main street businesses. And I got to learn about how they made money and how they served their customers and what kind of customers they were looking for. And that's really where my business education, you know, sunk in. But I knew that, you know, the days were numbered for that. So uh, I left and with a partner started the business. And after about a year, I lost my passion for that business and I sold it. That was the first business I ever sold. And I opened up a finance consulting practice where I was brokering commercial debt for small businesses. So I was doing commercial loans, uh, lines of credit, factoring facilities, which is the sale of accounts receivable, uh, equipment leases, that kind of thing. and what I would what would often happen is I would run into people who were trying to buy a business, and I would just be shocked at the amateur level of guidance and and um, you know help they were getting. There was this one case where this Korean couple who had just moved to Canada um, they had engaged a real estate agent to help them buy a convenience store business, and then they went to the bank to get finance. The banker called me because the banker knew that I would be able to help them out. And, and she said, David, this lovely couple, they've got a, a contract here. It's a home purchase form contract. And it's been filled out for the purpose of buying the store. And it says they have 10 days to get 95% financing. And in those days, you could get 95% financing on a house, but you've never been able to get 95% financing on a business like that. And so it, it just demonstrated that the the intermediary in the transaction, the person trying to put the deal together had no idea what they were doing. And when I looked around my local market, I saw that there was a complete lack of expertise in this field. There, there just weren't good, solid professional business brokers. And then the financial crisis happened. And basically half the companies that I was using as a source of credit for my, for my clients went under out of business. And and that's when I saw that opportunity to pivot. So I joined up with a big international franchise brand in business brokerage, and I chose them because they gave me access to training. And over the next two and a half years, I started working as a business broker while I did the training to obtain my professional designation. And this designation had been around for over 40 years, and I was the first person in my province to ever have it. And and so it just you know shows that there was a complete uh, void in the marketplace. And once I was up and running, 
over a 36 month period, I sold 36 businesses. And so by almost any account, I was probably the most successful business broker who's ever operated here uh, in New Brunswick. The problem is that when I tell you that statistic, it sounds like an even eddy steady business, but the reality is it wasn't. So I went through three different droughts, one of them nine months long without a deal closing. And when you're a business broker, you work on commission. And so nine months of paying my overhead, my household bills, my staff, et cetera, with no money coming in was really tough to get through. And, you know, it all came to a head in 2011. I was heading into the fall. I had six different deals lined up that I was going to close. They were going to bring me a quarter of a million dollars in commissions, India. And then one deal fell apart because it was in a regulated industry and the government wouldn't issue a license to the buyer. And then another deal fell apart because it was a franchise business and the franchise representatives were total jerks to the buyer. And he said, I will not get into business with those guys. So that deal fell apart. And the third deal fell apart because a bank rescinded a finance letter they had issued. So my six deals and quarter million dollars of commissions became three deals with 110000 And it was just enough money to pay off my credit cards and lines of credit. And I said, this is it. I can't live this way. I had two small kids at home that, that time, and um, I said, I can't do it. So I quit. I, I paid off the credit cards and lines of credit, and I left the industry, and I became a banker. So when I was working for the bank, I was driving around. I had uh, territory covering the three maritime provinces on the east coast of Canada. And um, so I would visit clients, and my phone would ring as I was driving between these different places. And it would be people that got my name. They were saying, I'm trying to buy a business. I need help. And I would say, I'm sorry, I'm not a broker anymore. And they would say, I'm trying to sell my business. I need help. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm not a broker. And one day, this guy named Bob called me. And Bob had been one of the buyers that I met when I had my office. And he said, Dave, I found this business. I think I want to buy it. My lawyer's telling me certain things. My accountant's telling me certain things. They're both telling me what I need out of the deal, but neither of them seems to be able to guide me through this negotiation or to really get into the meat of what's in this business and to ask the kinds of questions I need to be asking. Can you help me? And I said, Bob, I said, I can help you, but I'm not a broker anymore. I'd have to charge you like a, a, a consulting rate or something. And I've got a full-time job, so I'm busy during the week. And he said, great, I'll meet you Saturday morning where you live. <laughs> and that call from Bob was the beginning of a little consulting side hustle that grew over two years, crips my paycheck from the bank. And, 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 and I left and I, and I started to do what I'm doing today. So, you know, over the course of time, as I built up that consulting practice, um, you know, I started to do other things. I wrote some books on the topics of buying and selling and franchises and local investing and things like this. And those are on Amazon. And then I started the online courses and I started the YouTube channel. And, and now because of the books and the YouTube channel, et cetera, I really do serve an international clientele. People call me from all over the world and it's always the same kinds of issues that people are having when they're either buying or selling. And the reason why, you know, people want help from someone like me is that they, they want the help of a trusted advisor who's been through the process before, but they don't necessarily want to give someone 10 or 12% of the value that they've built in their business. 
business if they're sellers. And if they're buyers, they're leery of that broker because they know the broker is being paid by the seller. And they want someone who definitely works just for them. And so as a, in a consulting model, this is what I'm able to do for people is I'm able to give them what they want, which is guidance and advice and education. And uh, just like an accountant or an attorney, um, I do something for them and then I build them. And so they, they, they can take as much or as little as they wish. Um, now, given that you have looked at a lot of deals and a lot of businesses before, uh, what are like some of the common mistakes people make in buying businesses off the top of your head, like the top ones? Yeah, so, so the top most one is not properly valuing their own time. So normally when businesses are presented for sale, there's a, a cash flow number called seller's discretionary earnings, which is the combination. It's basically all the money available to an owner and manager. So that number represents the salary of the manager, but also the profit of the business, as well as any perks or, or you know, benefits that the current owner has been taking. Or it's all added up together there. And so what will happen is you'll see a, a business that will say it has a cash flow of $100,000, for example, and the asking price is $400,000. And people go, wow, if I buy that, it's a 25% rate of return. But it's not because you have to work there full time to get the hundred grand. Mm. Right. And so, like I mentioned earlier, you know, when you're buying a business, you've got two different hats on. You've got an investor hat on and you have a, you know, a job seeker hat on. And so you have to figure out what is it worth? What's the fair market value of being the manager of this business? Because that's what I'm going to have to pay myself to go there every day and run the operation. And then what money is left beyond that? Because that's the return I get as an investor. And then, of course, it changes the whole metric of how good it looks. And so um, that's the number one thing. Uh, the number two mistake that people make when they're, when they're buying a business is that they, they, they don't go to the right places for opinions and feedback. You know, I remember one time I, I brought a buyer to go look at a business and he brought his mother with him. And, you know, they had a very intelligent conversation, the buyer and the seller. And on the way home, the mother just kept criticizing the decor and the paintings and, and the way the business was decorated. And the guy eventually didn't buy the business. And one of the reasons was that his mother didn't think he should buy it. <laughs> right? And, and I don't know. I, I don't believe she had any kind of business training. And that's the whole point is people will talk to all kinds of people around them, but they won't talk to the right people. And, you know, I run into this even with business owners when I'm talking with them about all different aspects of business is I'll ask them who their friends are. I'll say, who do you hang out with? Who are your friends? And come to find, of course, that they don't have a circle of friends or business owners. They're spending their time with other people who, you know, look at the world in different ways. That that's really funny because I think we, as human beings, we all do that for everything, like even relationships or business or career. We take advice from people. Well, they're really opinions than advice because everyone has got one and most likely they're just very, they're not qualified to be advice, but we still take them because that's the easiest thing to take. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there was, 
I always would see people make the same mistakes. And so I actually put it together. It's one of the books that I have on Amazon. It's called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And it's just a list of the 21 things. And, the, you know, there's a page or two about each one. But I, I go through each one. And, you know, it ranges from things to do with landlords to franchise agreements to, to due diligence is another one. Um, but it, it, it's always the same thing. And it's simply because... People do not buy and sell businesses every day. And it's, it's, it's very rare. You know, having a successful business is a very precious thing. And most of the time when people have a successful, profitable business, they don't want to sell it. They want to keep it. They want to enjoy that cash flow for themselves. And it's only when there's a pressing personal concern that people actually put these businesses up for sale. So I, I mentioned boredom and fatigue. But the other ones are divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, and then lastly, retirement. So it's something is happening that is forcing the person to no longer be able to run the business or no longer want the business. That's when they go up for sale. And so because they go up for sale so rarely, you know, it's not an everyday occurrence to simply be buying and selling businesses. And for most people in most countries around the world, you know, there are tax consequences for selling a business. And so it's not palatable. They don't want to do it. And, and, you know, small businesses sell for, and I'm talking about businesses that have, you know, cash flows under $500,000. They sell for relatively low multiples because they're very risky. Um, You know, I can tell you all kinds of stories of businesses that went under and it had nothing to do with the owner or the customers or the suppliers. You know, there are restaurants that have gone under because cities have decided to replace sewers, you know, on the street and took three and a half months and nobody could drive to the restaurant during that time. Right. So great restaurant, great recipes, good staff, excellent customers, city decision closes them. Right. And those are the kinds of risks that appear in the world of small business that cause them to, to sell for relatively low multiples. So nobody decides to sell their small business to cash out like people might do in Silicon Valley or, or someone who's built a business that might be worth $50 million. It's, it's the personal stuff. And likewise, on the other side of the table, the buyers are also being driven by personal things, you know, desire to improve their life, desire to grow beyond, you know, the station that their education experience has allowed them to, to achieve in the world of employment. And, and they want something more. And that's what's driving them to be out there looking. That, that's a really important point. Um, I, I didn't think of the, the two sides, but I guess we don't see it normally when you see it from afar because we only see the, all the good sides and not, not really acknowledging, you know, okay, what are the negatives? What are the other things that we don't actually see from, from far or from the outside um, that we have to look at? Now, one of, the, one of the topics that has been coming up lately is about, you know, this whole thing about uh, the biggest wealth transition of all times, which is the baby boomers retirement and transitioning their businesses into or selling their businesses. And now, now why that is the this is the best time to buy them. What's your opinion on that? And how do you go about doing it if you are to buy a business like that? You know, it's funny. Just last week on my YouTube channel, I put out a video where I was talking with uh, an exit consultant who works with business owners to prepare their businesses for sale. And we were talking about this because, 
the topic of the baby boomers selling their businesses has been around for a while. And baby boomers are retiring at an incredible rate. And we both were saying how we are not seeing a preponderance of businesses owned by baby boomers up for sale. Now, here's the thing. The market is opaque. We don't know the exact numbers of what's happening. And there aren't even government statistics available that are trustworthy. And here, here's why. You know, I don't know about the exact rules in Australia, but here in Canada, if I bought the shares of a business, what would happen is there would be a transfer of the directors on the provincial paperwork. There might be some indication that the business had been sold on the federal tax return, but the provincial government wouldn't know that a business had been sold and the federal government may know. Now, if it's an asset sale, what would happen is one person's business would sell its assets, tools, equipment, inventory, et cetera, to another entity created by the buyer. And as far as the government would be concerned, one business had closed down and another business had started. So some of the data reported as business starts are actually business acquisitions. And so, right. so we don't know exactly what's going on from the numbers point of view. And all we can see is what's available in the advertised market. And in the advertised market that I'm aware of, where, where I know people that are involved, I still see people from all different age categories because they're driven by those personal things. You know, a lot of the um, academic work on this idea that there's this huge transfer of wealth that's happening comes from people who believe that people retire at the age of 65. And I can tell you that entrepreneurs don't. <laughs> Most of the time when I've had clients who actually wanted to sell for retirement, they've been in their 70s. They've been older, which makes sense, right? Because if you own the business and you control your day and you control your time and you still enjoy it, why would you sell it, right? And then there are people who are doing hard work to systematize their business so that they can run it with fewer hours on their own part. So they're still owning their business. It hasn't been sold, but they're working there less, sort of a semi-retirement kind of thing. And then there are the people who decided to slow down a while ago. They haven't been reinvesting in the business. They haven't been pursuing new opportunities for growth. And the value of that business is declining. And, you know, unfortunately, I meet some of these people and they want to sell their business. And I look at their numbers and I say, you know what? You probably should have seen me 10 years ago when there was something here to sell. But you've been winding things down and there really is no goodwill in this business. And those people end up just closing and they liquidate whatever, whatever assets might be there. You know, another big topic that I talk about on my YouTube channel is the concept of zombie capital. Um, it's a, a term that, that I dreamt up. And here's what it means. It means when you've got value tied up in something for which you do not get a rate of return. So when, when I do an analysis of a business, um, I want to see how the business is performing. And if the company or the corporation that I'm looking at owns the building in which the business resides, then I'm actually looking at two different assets. I'm looking at a piece of real estate and an operating business. And I want to look at them independently, independently of each other because we evaluate an operating business in a different way than what we evaluate uh, a building for. So when a real estate appraiser evaluates a building, what they're going to do is figure out what the fair market rent is going to be that this building should be able to obtain. 
and they're going to figure out what the expenses of the building are. They're going to come up with a, an operating income for the building, and they're going to capitalize it. So they're, they're going to do research and figure out what kind of rate of return people need in a given market. <clears throat> this is going to allow them to determine the value of the building. So that's how we value real estate. But if I look at the income statement of a business where there's property and an operating business mixed together, there's no rent. So part of the profit at the bottom actually belongs to the building. And when I'm evaluating that business, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a new expense called imputed rent. And this is what is going to shave off that part of the earnings, which actually belongs to the real estate. And what I'm left with is a true view of what the operating business is doing. And, you know, when you don't have a mortgage to pay, when you pay those bills and you don't have rent to pay, it's a lot easier to be lazy in your business. You don't need to do the sales volume. You don't need to do the price increases, right? I've had so many people come to me with a, you know, a set of financials believing that they had a good amount of earnings, that their business was worth something. And when I complete the normalization process, I say, look, you're working full-time in the business and the business itself is only earning 50 grand. Who's going to be willing to pay you to earn 50 grand and work full-time, right? You know, people can get a job like that for free. They just have to apply if they have the right skills. So why would somebody pay you to have this job, right? And so there are a lot of businesses out there owned by the baby boomers who are in this zombie capital position. And so the dead capital is the value of the real estate. You know, they own that building, but the building isn't actually generating a rate of return. I have to tell those people quite often that they'd be better off just winding up the business and finding a tenant for the building. And that way they can go off and enjoy some passive income. Mm. That's really, I haven't heard anyone talking about it, but I can, I know a few businesses like that where they're not set up right. Um, the cash flow isn't enough and the owners are working full time. And I say full time, I mean seven days a week. Um, and yeah. they are struggling to retire because they can't retire because you have to find a buyer who's willing to pay that much of money and be willing to work that much unless you do something miraculous in the business and actually bring in some more expertise to build the business up again, uh, which is what a lot of people don't think about, I guess. Um, now, and, 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 and who would pay to be in that position, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so... You know, I, I don't call those businesses what you just described. I call them jobs. And yes. there, there, is certain, there is a certain market for a job, you know, particularly like if you're a newcomer to a country and there's a language barrier or something and you can't work in, your, in the field you've trained in, you need to do something to have an income. And so this is why we often see, you know, new immigrant families buy businesses like corner stores or gas stations, and then the family will proceed to work all the hours right? Because they, that's what they have to do in order to, to get ahead. And quite frankly, because they're willing to do that, they, the, the you know, local people who are already there in the country, they aren't willing to do that. They, they kind of get pushed out of the market for those types of businesses.
there's a lot of things that are, you know, I can ask you about this, but I want to move on to the topic of like, if somebody is to buy a business, are there any particular industries that is well-placed in this current market as opposed to other industries? Um, and that would be doing well, or maybe even through a recession, are there industries that, that would do well regardless of uh, whatever is going on? Yeah. You know, I like service industry and I like to think about anything that is unlikely to be done by a robot in the next 10 years. So, you know, repairing your car, um, you know, certain home services, repairs to homes, you know, roofing, this kind of thing, plumbing, um, anything that has to do with regular systematized labor, like a factory. I mean, we are already seeing a huge amount of mechanization and automation in those places. We're only going to see more. I visited an apple orchard um, just a few weeks ago, and the next thing that they're getting is a robot that will put the apple crates together on the pallet and wrap them in plastic. And what's interesting is that they're not investing in this because they want to, um, you know, reduce their payroll. They're investing <laughs> because they can't find the workers. You know, which which is also one of the, the problems that a lot of service industries are going to be facing. But but I still I like that. You know, the aging population means fewer people are going to be climbing on their own rooftops to, to fix things, and it's going to be a long time before a robots able to do that. So you're saying that you know, like industries where it the manual labor is um, is needed, um, like plumbing. Um, you're saying that that would be good industries to go into? Well, I think so, because what we see is a disruption that occurs with new technology and it attacks one sector after another. You know, there's, you know, I suppose there could be an Uber of plumbers, but, you know, a plumbing business already is an Uber of plumbers, you know, taking calls from clients and sending out tradesmen to go do the work. I, I like anything that can't be done in the foreseeable future by a robot. And I guess um, if you are looking to um, buy like some of, uh, of course, like talking to an advisor like you, I think is, is definitely key because unless you are in the market, in the business of buying and selling businesses, you don't know what's going on. But one are, what are like some of the key questions that somebody who's willing to buy a business should ask themselves before even buy a business? Yeah, what's my alternative? So you need to have a very clear idea of what the alternative is for you if you do not buy. Because here's, here's what happens is people will get motivated by this you know, future vision of themselves as the business owner. And they, they see this future where they're running the business. And, you know, um, you know I always imagine, you know, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory when I'm talking about this. You know, they're going to be giving tours of the factory and, and you know, directing the Oompa Loompas and all this kind of thing. But they get this idea in their head and they're daydreaming all the time about this, about what it's going to be like when they run a business. And then they start negotiating. And, you know, the seller obviously wants the best deal for them and the buyer is trying to get the best deal that they can get. But the back and forth starts to happen. And because of this image, this image of themselves as the owner, they'll often get so excited about the business that they'll go beyond where they should. 
And you need to write down your alternative, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement so that you can always compare and say, am I really, am I really willing to trade all of these savings that I have and the money I'm going to borrow from the bank and the money I'm going to borrow from the seller? Am I willing to invest all of that for this business when I could have this instead, which is the alternative? And sometimes the alternative isn't great. It's a job you hate or you know, maybe it's moving or maybe it's, you know, risking some other way, but you always have to know what the alternative is and have it written down for yourself. And, and this again is one of the reasons why some people end up, you know, willing to do more or less to get a business. Because if my alternative, you know, if I'm a highly educated person and my alternative is to get, you know, $150,000 a year job, then I'm going to be willing to pay less for a business where I would earn 150000 than someone who is only able to earn $80,000 in the labor market. For them, that higher level of earning is going to be really worth something special because they can't get that income on their own. They can only get it through being a business owner, whereas the first person in the example can get that income without investing in the business. So, you know, the market's dynamic and it's, it's muddy too because it's, it's opaque. It's a secret market. You know, if people find out that a given business is for sale, it can actually destroy the business. And that's why sellers don't put big for sale signs, you know, on the front of their business if they're smart. And um, sometimes buyers have a hard time connecting with the sellers. That's why we have this network of brokers and websites and, uh, and all this stuff to try to bring the buyers and sellers together. I'm, you know, it reminds me of a, a story. I, um, I met a guy who was looking to buy a bakery and he actually had business cards made up with his name and phone number. And right on the business card, it said, I'm, I'm looking to buy a bakery. And he walked into every independent bakery within a hundred kilometer radius. And he walked right in and he asked for the owner. And when the owner appeared, he said, hi, I'm here to buy your bakery. And he handed over his card. And regardless of whether or not that business was for sale, that owner could not say to this person, okay, I'd like to talk with you about buying my business because the employees were there, the customers were there. And if people learn that a business is for sale, you know, they're worried. The, the employees are worried about the change of ownership. They're worried that the new owner may not like them or may give their job to a relative, right? Customers are worried that the new owner may not be able to maintain the same quality. And if they have a long-term contract, then it makes them fearful that they won't be able to depend on the business anymore. If anyone buys something that has a warranty attached to it, then they become worried that the new owners are going to honor the warranty or maybe won't be able to deliver on the warranty or, or what have you. So, so it's risky and for both parties because the seller wants to preserve that confidentiality. And the buyer, if they're smart and they know what they're doing, they also want to preserve the confidentiality because they don't want to ruin the business that they're trying to buy. You know, employees are the biggest thing. We mentioned earlier about how it's becoming harder and harder to find good employees in a lot of places around the world because of the retirement of baby boomers. But, you know, the best employees in the business always have opportunities with competitors. And so if people find out a business is for sale and those employees are worried for their paycheck, they can go. And now you've got a business where all the best employees have departed. That's not pretty. 
Um, I want to quickly touch on the point that we talked about before the interview, which is about seller financing. Now, this is a mm. concept that a lot of people, one, don't know about, that you can even do it in the first place. Um, and one thing that you mentioned is that there is a, there's a way to do it. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, if a business is profitable, then a certain component of its value is going to be called goodwill, which is simply the difference between the agreed upon selling price and the value of the tangible things in the business. So if we, if we think about a company maybe that digs foundations for houses, they're going to have trucks and trailers and digging equipment. And if they make a really great profit every year, the value of the business is going to be greater than what those pieces of machinery are worth. And so the question now comes, how am I going to get the money as a buyer to buy this business? Because when I look at my own savings account, I don't have enough money to buy the whole business. And when I go to the bank, they're willing to make me a loan, but only against the collateral, which is the equipment, right? And so how do I bridge that gap at the end? Where does the rest of the money come from? And most of the time, it comes from the seller. And so, you know, this is the other thing about buying and selling businesses. When when somebody arrives on the golf course and announces their retirement because they sold their business for a million dollars, nobody at the golf course then asks them, Oh yeah, what were the terms of sale? How much did you get on closing? Do you have to hold a seller note? I mean, people just congratulate the guy. But mm-hmm. when he says that he sold his business for a million dollars, he may have only received six hundred thousand on closing. He might be getting the other four hundred thousand with some interest over the next five years. And that is the reality of how these deals are done. And it's necessary for both parties because, you know, well, let's talk about sellers first. You know, if if you sell something expensive. So let's think about car dealers. Car dealers are trying to sell cars that have a sticker price of $40,000. They know that most people don't have $40,000. And so what does a car dealer do? He makes arrangements with the banks and the leasing companies so that the financing is already prepared, right? Yet when people want to sell a business, they, they don't even consider how the buyer is going to get the money to buy the business. They think it's the buyer's problem. Well, if car dealers took that attitude, they wouldn't be selling very many cars, would they? Mm-hmm. Right? So when I work with sellers, I say, look, we have to figure out what your business is worth, but we also have to figure out how we can uh, arrange and present this sale so that we can have the widest number of buyers, meaning that we have the lowest possible down payment that they can still get into the business. And we're going to have to figure out how they're going to get the rest of the money. So a wise seller is going to be talking to the banker before they even put the business on the market to find out what kind of financing is going to be available against their assets, their inventories, these kinds of things. And then they prepare themselves to underwrite or make a decision about the buyer to make sure they're the right buyer if they're going to then do some seller financing. And sellers would say to me, you know, I would never do that. I say, well, you say that now. But when push comes to shove, would you rather sell the business, you know, for $300,000 and take two hundred dollars in closing and a $100,000 note? Or would you rather wait two years on the market and have all these different buyers appear who can't get the money? And after two years of waiting, you finally reduce the price down to $225,000 and you take that, right? Which scenario would you rather have? Because that's the reality. When people decide to sell and they put their business on the market, they, they then start to dream about the retirement. And when they start putting their head in retirement, 
then the, the foot comes off the pedal, off the gas. When things start to slow down and the performance usually starts to decline and so the value starts to decline. From the buyer's point of view, they're terrified. You know what they're terrified of, India? They're scared that the seller is lying to them to get their money, right? <laughs> you know, a buyer is going to do due diligence on a business for a couple of weeks usually or maybe a month or two. They will never know the business as intimately as the seller, mm. right? Seller may have been there for a decade or more. So the buyer is worried about getting ripped off. And when they see a seller who says, no, I'm not willing to finance part of this, any part of this business, you have to pay me all cash right away. Then the first concern is, well, what if you're lying about something? Mm. What's my recourse, right? Do I then have to engage an attorney and find you in Fiji and hope that you haven't spent the money, right? And try mm. to sue you, right? So, so the buyer, number one, they have trouble getting the money. So they, they can't find the money, right? Number two, they're worried about being ripped off. They're worried, is the seller telling you the truth? Number three, if they go to the bank and the banker sees that there's no seller financing, then the banker becomes concerned. Here's why. When a seller does seller financing, he becomes a de facto guarantor for the bank. I'll give you a little scenario. I sell a business and I take back 30% as a seller note and the buyer goes to the bank as well. Three years go by, the buyer fails, right? He's not making his payments. The banker knows that I'm owed money as well. So what does the banker want more than anything else? He just wants his money, right? He doesn't want to have to repossess the business. So the banker calls the seller and says, Mr. Seller, I know that you're owed money as well. If I have to foreclose on this business, it's going to go to auction. You're going to get nothing. But if you like to, why don't you foreclose on the business? You can stop by my office later today, add your name to this note, and if you carry on the payments, we'll be happy. Mm. Right? And so the worst thing that can happen to a seller in a seller financing scenario is they get the majority, usually 50, 60, 70% of the money on closing day, and then they might end up getting the business back. Think right. about that. Right. Right. They get the business back. Maybe they have to take over some bank debt, but they already got most of the money and they've been collecting usually every month until the buyer fails. And they're the ones who know how to fix the business and they can sell it again. Mm. It's the most lucrative outcome possible for a seller is to do seller financing and have a buyer fail. But most people don't consider it because again, most people don't sell businesses every day. They're not a part of the market. They're not a part of the process. They haven't seen it. And when it's happened to people around them, the stories are not shared because everybody keeps these cards close to their chest because it's a secret. It's always personal business that people don't talk about. And, and that's why people come to me because, you know, I'm sharing information. I'm teaching people how to do it. You know, when that buyer Who's, who's taking all of their savings, taking money from family and friends, maybe they've drawn a line of credit against their home, and they put all of this together to make a down payment and they're borrowing money against the business's assets from the bank. It's scary. It's very scary. It's a leap of faith. And when the seller is standing there saying, you know what? You remind me of yourself 20, you remind me of me 20 years ago when I was younger, and I believe in you and I think you can do this. And I'm going to be here to help you. And I have so much confidence in you. I'm going to lend you $100,000 too. 
it gives the buyer the confidence they need to mm. get over the line and do the deal. And on top of it, it, it gives the buyer a sense of security because when these deals are structured properly, the seller note usually has a clause saying that the note is subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation or an undisclosed liability, which means that if you're being lied to, that if something is not being properly disclosed, you now have a recourse. Instead of having to sue the seller, you just have to stop paying the note or deduct your losses from the balance of the note. The buyer is in control of the cash. And it, it basically, it takes the risk off the buyer and shares it with the seller. Mm. The reason why the seller is willing to accept that is because it allows them ultimately to get a higher selling price, to sell more quickly, and in the off chance the buyer fails, it can be very lucrative. And also, seller notes are usually always written at interest rates much higher than what you can get in the investment markets, right? What are you going to do if you get the cash? Put it in the bank at 2%? You know, the seller note is 8%, right? So, so these are the kinds of uh, things that get discussed on my YouTube channel and some of my books and things like this. And understanding how the deal should be put together and why and what's in it for both parties is, is critical in preparing a seller for going through this, this deal. You know, I've got so many instances, so many stories I could tell you about people who have gone to the wrong intermediary. They've gone to someone who doesn't know what they're doing, who hasn't properly prepared them or set expectations, and, and deals don't get done because the seller is unaware. It's really unfortunate. Well, David, that was a, a lot of great advice and great information that a lot of people don't normally like. We don't talk about these topics normally and we don't hear about them unless somebody like you come along and then um, then talk about topics like this and advice. Um, I want to switch gears into a little bit because I could keep you here all day and ask you all sorts of questions because I, I could do that. Um, but I want to ask you, like, what would you say is like the best and the worst advice or best and the word worst advice you've been given throughout your entire journey till now. Yeah, sure. So my best advice is actually summed up in a quote from author Ayn Rand. And she said, you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the results of ignoring reality. I think that's the best piece of advice because I see people putting their head in the sand all the time. But as long as you do that, something else is going to happen, which you cannot avoid. You have to deal with it eventually. And, and the worst piece of advice I've ever heard is, is whoever made the, you know, the quote, you have to spend money to, to make money. I've, I've come across so many clever and intelligent business owners over the years who've just done amazing things and created amazing business models where they've been able to make money with very little you know, capital invested. And um, I think that that's a belief that has to be challenged. You know, if someone's in business and they have a shortage of funds, it, people can become very creative in mm -hmm. how they change. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes if people have a lot of money, you know, it makes them lazy. Mm. 
<laughs> well, if you could go back to um, when you first started, what would you change about how you did things? I don't think I would change anything because I think I had to go through my trial and my fire in order to get to the place where I am today. Mm. No regrets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. Um, well, what would you say is like the, the number one thing you've learned about yourself um, throughout this entire time? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think I've learned, um, you know, what kind of role that I need to play. So, you know, at, at, when I was younger, when I was doing all those businesses as a child, and when I went to business school, I really pictured myself as, you know, the, the industrialist, you know, the, the person with the big business and all of the minions and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and what I've come to realize is that's not who I am at all. I'm, I'm the, you know, the thinker, the temper, and the, the person who, who helps people get through a problem. And I spend my time thinking about this stuff so that other people can get through it more quickly. And, and that's really what I enjoy. I think if I had to manage the same thing day in and day out all the time, I would, I would become the person who was burned out and bored. And so I look to my clients to, to brighten my day by bringing me new challenges. Mm. Well, David, it has been lovely having you on the show. It was a lot of great information that I'm pretty sure all of our listeners are going to love. Now, for those of them who want to get hold of you to learn more about buying and selling businesses or any of your books that you have, how can they do that? Um, and how can they find more information like this? Um, that you are well spreading to the world sure so the best thing to do would be to go to my blog site which is davidcbarnett.com and from it's like the central hub from there you're going to be able to access my books my online courses most importantly though if you're interested in business sign up for my email list i send out a weekly digest every week with a new video and it's usually answering a question that a viewer has sent in or sometimes I interview people about business topics relating to buying and selling or managing small businesses. And then on other days, I send out thoughts, remarks, stories, et cetera, that, that I think are relevant as well. Great. Thank you so much, David, for everything that you shared. It was a lovely chat. Thanks, Mindy. I had a great time being on your show. I hope this gave you some food for thought on acquiring businesses and selling them as well. Make sure to go and have a look at David's website and many books he's written on business acquisitions. All of David's contact details are on our website in show notes at vindiav.com as always. And this is our episode for today. Until I meet you next time, keep at it in your extraordinary journey.